Do you wake up each morning with like this fire in your belly? Sometimes, but usually not. I mean, I think it's more, it's stimulated by outside things. I mean, I'm a mom, so I usually wake up feeling like I'm a little too tired and my kids are tumbling in the bed and I've got things to deal with. And I do think every day I wake up hoping that maybe today's just going to be a relatively quiet day with nothing to really agitate about. And it, it turns out that there's just, it seems like nowadays there's something to advocate for every single day, something that needs my attention. I feel like there's very few days where I feel like I can comfortably retreat into my private life and not feel the need to advocate in an outspoken way for something. That is the voice of physician, activist, entrepreneur, and research scientist, Dr. Esther Chu, today's guest on Stimulus. I'm your host, Rob Orman, and what we do here on Stimulus is break down strategies and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And thinking differently is something Esther Chu would like us as a society to do. And more on Esther and all of that in a moment. But first, let me ask you this, a little riddle. What do Legos, beans, beads, and Cheetos, talking about crunchy Cheetos, not puffy Cheetos, have in common? They're all things that I have removed from kids' noses in the emergency department. And I'll tell you, having the right tool for that makes all the difference. And that right tool is the balloon extractor from today's sponsor, Marmed. If you work in the emergency department, urgent care, operating room, you are probably familiar with Marmed's tourniquet. That is a number one selling digital tourniquet, but they also make a bunch of other very cool and incredibly useful stuff, including a newly redesigned balloon extractor for nasal foreign bodies. The balloon extractor is something that you can't not have if you are tasked with getting things out of noses. The original design for this thing, it worked great. I can tell you from personal experience. But now version two has a thinner tip, an improved balloon, and it's also 30% less expensive than the competitor. Hello. You can check it out at marmed, that's M-A-R-M-E-D.com slash stimulus. And while you're there, you can order a free sample of the balloon extractor. That's right. Just order a free sample, comes right to you. And you can also get free samples of Marmed's other products like finger tourniquets, abscess drains. Just go to marmed.com slash stimulus or use the link in the show notes. I mean, who doesn't love free samples? Now, for our guest today, Esther Chu, professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health Science University, nationally, I would actually say internationally, recognized expert in gender bias in medicine. She is all over mass media with this, all over medical media with this. She frequently lectures. She writes in popular press. She writes in medical journals. She's also a funded researcher. She's been the president of the American Academy of Women in Academic Emergency Medicine and a senior advisory board member of FemEM.org, co-creator of Equity Quotient, which we're going to talk quite a bit about in the second half of the interview. But I'm going to honestly say that this bio could go on for 20 minutes. She does and has done a lot of stuff, but I'm going to let the interview speak for itself. First topic, social media. Esther has about 150,000 Twitter followers. And I would describe her feed as the message board of here's what's what you're really present on social media and you know there's like a particular issue that you might hook onto and does it come from like something you read in the news or you know like an, an encounter in the emergency department or a conversation or just something that pops in your head or all of the above is there like a consistent input mechanism for what you decide to bring to light 
It has changed. I think of my first piece of really outward advocacy as this thing that I did when the Trump administration started dismantling the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare. And there was a moment where I was sitting in my office reading the New York Times and I read this headline and it was all about how if you took away the Affordable Care Act or took away its impact, it would disproportionately affect mothers, children, you know, vulnerable populations. And I'm a health disparities researcher. And there's something about reading that newspaper article that really galvanized me. And I started to feel like I, I, most of my life has have identified as a pretty apolitical person. I mean, I had my belief system, but I didn't feel like I needed to be out there as a visible advocate or activist. And there was something about reading that headline that it just hit everything about me, you know, my identity, the whole driving force behind my research, the whole driving force behind, honestly, my clinical care, how I wanted my kids to remember me, and what I felt like I should do with the time that I have on this earth. And and that's really where I started thinking that part of my job as a clinician and as somebody with a voice is to start being much more vocal around things that I cared about. And, and so that was kind of my in. It didn't really find me. I found it. But then since then, as I have a bigger platform, so much is pushed to me. You know, so every day I contend with dozens and dozens of messages from people who are like, hey, I just want to draw this to your attention. Do you think you could lend your voice to this? We're starting this campaign. Can you amplify it? And it's a process of kind of filtering through and deciding how I'm going to respond to asks, to specific asks. So it's much more of a passive mechanism in some ways, although I still try to pay attention and make sure that every decision I make about how to spend my time is spent wisely. You know, because everything that you do, every small yes is time away from your family. And uh, my kids really need me right now. And my husband needs me and my friends need me. And so I also want to be just a fully realized person and not just someone who lives on social media and is basically like a function of what she tweets. How do you decide whether to say yes or no? And then when you say no, how, how do you say no to the person who had the ask? Yeah, it's really hard because I love to say yes. I want to support people. Um, I want to be a nice person. And so the the no's come really hard to me. But one of my friends, I mean, the nice thing is I have this huge network of kind of peer mentors. And I feel like people help me focus a lot, which is really how you, I mean, you have to maintain some base level of wellness in your life. And also there's priorities. I mean, my family just needs me first. And so one of my friends who's perpetually actually much more busy than I am, one of my best friends from college is a rabbi in New York City, uh, in the biggest synagogue in New York City. Actually, I think it's the biggest reform synagogue in the country. And she's just someone who's needed all the time. And she told me at one point, every ask you get, look at your kids and say, when I do this, I'm taking time directly away from them. Is that worth it? And so, of course, I still say a lot of yeses, but it has to be really compelling. And it has to be something that I uniquely can do. So if 100 people can do that thing um, and might even be happier to do it, then it doesn't have to be me. And so I think giving up that sort of that FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out, I no longer have an ego about I am the only one who can do this. I mean, it's ridiculous. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, there's someone else who can do it as good, probably better, and might actually be a little bit more open to doing it or might see it as an opportunity. Whereas if I don't see it as an opportunity, then I should hand that off to somebody else. So um, I try to frame it like that, but it's hard. And how do you say no? 
So usually I'll say, I would love to do that. I'm totally honored to ask. I'm really up to my neck in a bunch of things. And I would love to suggest other people for this opportunity. And as much as possible, I try to feed specific names in. Then that takes the guilt off me. And then also me, uh, makes me feel like I can help to elevate people who are, you know, maybe just getting started out in their advocacy or their lecturing or their mentorship or whatever it is and and actually would would love that handoff. I'd love to talk a little bit about the dismantling of the Affordable Care Act. It was a dismantling without an alternate plan. And right. so it it seems like it was just, oh, we need to put this car in reverse. But you don't really hear now how many fewer people are insured. Here is the the hard data impact of what has happened since Affordable Care Act has started to be dismantled some of that research just takes time. It's like the research that comes out now is still largely the positive impacts of having it in place. Because if you're doing that kind of policy research, you have to do these interrupted time series or difference in difference analyses. And for those analyses to be robust, you actually need a number of years afterwards. But I think what we're already seeing is that way too many Americans are uninsured or underinsured right now. And with COVID, on top of everything else, we're just seeing how many people fall through the cracks um, because it's it's largely black Americans and poor Americans who are underinsured might be hesitant to seek care and to receive testing. And I think that is one piece in the multitude of elements um, that have really fed into these vast health inequalities that are playing out right now. Let's say you get tapped to revamp U.S. healthcare. You're not going to have any political opposition to whatever you want to put in place, <laughs> but you will have you will have to fund it. And and I I heard this interview with Barack Obama when he it was after the Affordable Care Act went into place, and it said, well, why didn't you just you know do a 180 degree turn and make universal health care or single payer and just you know so everybody's covered? He's like, I would I would love to do that, but I have to turn the ship two degrees and as I, as I start to make it 180 degrees, and let's say it will, and now you yeah. can steer the ship wherever you want. What would health care look like? in the U.S. from the big picture, and then how would you fund it? I certainly think we need universal health care, but I would like single payer, some form of a, a Medicare for all. And I think what we underappreciate is how much waste there is in the system and how much energy and expense we devote to the current payer system. It's incredibly complex. I mean, you and I both know how much time we sit around talking about coding and billing and and all the complexities of the, you know, we have a whole workforce, a very expensive administrative workforce just to try to figure out how the hell we can even get paid for the patients that we see. Right. And of course, that workforce, by the way, just can't be unemployed overnight. You know, it is a huge upfront investment for the change. But I think ultimately, get rid of this huge administrative bloat, we get rid of the way that prices are driven up by ins by traditional insurance. And it's an investment in providing better care upstream so that we can save on kind of our costly, low-value care downstream. The premise is that in the long term, we save money on this. Where is too much money put and where is not enough money put? Like right, right now as, as we do it. I think we put a lot of money into care that is driven more by the fact that we have high-volume specialty services offered than actually care that's driven by health outcomes. And I mean, it's really interesting because although we spend so much of our GDP on healthcare, if you look across countries that are similar to the US in other respects, our health outcomes are not 
where you would think. You know, I mean, basic health outcomes, things like maternal mortality or uh, early childhood health outcomes, we don't actually compete with our peers internationally. And I think we tend to put a lot of resources into highly specialized care while neglecting basic health care, preventive care, and also making sure that we have health equity so that the things that we actually are able to do well are distributed across the population um, so that we can really reap the benefit of it as a country. And of course, we spend a ton of expense on end-of-life care rather than focusing on quality of care, you know, sort of a dignified end-of-life. I'm looking at your bio, and it's this, it goes from wow to zoinks to holy smokes. I mean, and now, <laughs> and now, and now, like full professor at OHSU, congratulations. Ah, uh, thank you. When I think of Esther Chu, it's kind of in all caps. And I want to go back a little bit. I know it's hard to take what I said, but going back in time, right? Nobody's all caps when they start out. So let's go back, say, to high school. Were you like a powerhouse activist then? Or were you kind of awkward? Were you just trying to keep your head afloat? <laughs> I mean, a little bit of everything. I think I was certainly awkward and super nerdy. I mean, I was on the mental math team. Oh. Oh, that kind of captures a whole world, doesn't it? Where did you grow up? Small town, Ohio, Fairy Park, Ohio, outside of Cleveland. You know, I, I was on the mental math team. For, you? Well, but I, I didn't realize like you actually had to practice or study math for that. And then we went to a mental math competition and just got destroyed. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I wasn't done. a mental math star. That would be different. But I was on the team. Let us say. Come on. How could you not be nerdy? I mean, you, you're, like with, you're like a research scientist, physician. Nerdy's in your blood. I'm just going to own it. Yeah. I like movies that involve space, you know, and I, <laughs> I was in there, but you know, we also, I think I, I had the blessing of being in a really small school. So you didn't have the luxury of specializing. So it wasn't like I could just be a nerd. I mean, somebody had to also be an athlete. Somebody had to be a cheerleader, you know, so I did a little bit of everything. And I will say, I think the thread through my life is I always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial itch. I always wanted to just create something that hadn't been there before. So I was just that kid who was like, We've never had a food drive. Let's have a food drive. Why does our school have one? We should have one, you know? And just like I always wanted to kind of start these initiatives. And, um, you know, I have a, a long family history of entrepreneurs. And I think my mother thinks it's something genetic that we just have kind of this itch to create something that's not there, especially when we see a specific need. What sports did you play in high school? I was a swimmer. Yeah. And you will not be able to handle this. I was a synchronized swimmer also. So I was on the swim team and then did this. <laughs> that was my offseason. Oh my God. <laughs> that sport is so freaking hard. And then you add like the presentation on top of it. And the coaches always seem like Bella Caroli. It was as hard as swimming in terms of the, kind of the muscle tone that yeah. you needed. But you added that you were often upside down, holding your breath for these incredibly long periods of time while holding on to the person next to you. I mean, there, it was kind of uh, an acrobatic feat. I wasn't like super good at it, but I, I actually thought it was the people who were on it were incredibly athletic. And um, I mean, I think we all had like resting heart rates of like 40 by the end of that season. And it was fun and interesting and wacky. And boy, I'll never <laughs> do that again. But it was just, it was this weird thing where for some reason, my really tiny underfunded public high school that had like only two AP classes somehow had a synchronized swimming program. And it was just kind of a quirk um, that I fell into in the middle of Ohio. You were talking about this entrepreneurial spirit that you had, like even, even when you were young and starting food drive, what was your first business business? Well, so one thing I hate doing as a relative introvert 
is I hate going door to door and selling things. Yeah. You know, and I was a Girl Scout and I hated selling cookies. And, you know, and so when I was on, I was kind of on the dance team, the team that goes out with pom poms during the halftime show for football. I was on that team. And we had to do a fundraiser and we had to sell something. I can't even remember magazines or t shirts or something. We had to sell something. And I did not want to do that. And so my idea was let's start a summer dance class for kids that will run and people will pay us. It'll essentially be like babysitting, but then we'll run like a two week dance class and then they'll have a performance at the end. And it turns out that there's no mom that will not pay for that to get rid of their kids (laughs) for a morning. So we had our biggest fundraiser ever was running this two week dance class. And the output was amazing because you had these freaking cute little six year olds doing a dance routine for their moms who were dying and crying and taking pictures. And I don't know how long that continued, but that continued for a long time after I I did that because no one was going to go back to selling magazines or calendars or whatever it is that we were selling um, when we could do this totally adorable thing that was, um, that was a complete, like, I mean, we were just buried in money from it. That was the first time I was like, I can start a business. I can design something that, that will take off. When you look at the big picture now for your advocacy, what, what would you say for those who don't know you or your platform, what is it that you stand for? Maybe uh, another way to ask that is, what is it that you stand against? I will always stand up against inequity. So I guess that means I stand for equity. But as someone who's always worked at safety net hospitals, you know how it is. It's like when you're in the ER, you're just, you're standing right there in this place where every single day you can see the toll of our structural inequities um, and you see who falls between the cracks in our society. It's so striking. It's it's not even like a smart observation. It's just the most obvious thing when you're in the ER day in and day out. And I work disproportionately overnights. And that's really where you see people who simply have no place to go. That is always the space that I'll occupy is trying to figure out why we have built a society where there are such enormous gaps in wealth, where the system is so stacked against people based on who you are, what you look like, and where you came from. And I will always stand up against that. Are there things that happen within the realm of clinical practice that you find repeatedly upsetting or frustrating? And it it could be things that are systemic or it could be interpersonal. Every now and then there'll be this case that comes up where we did the wrong thing for the patient, but there was actually no better option. And yet we still have to kind of review that case and and bemoan that the system is so terrible, you know? So you you know those cases. It's like the patient who keeps on coming in a DKA because he's homeless and you have to refrigerate insulin. No one can figure out how to set that system up for him. And we can, yet we cannot find housing either. And, and, you know, the social workers will come in and the case managers will come in and the whole physician and nursing team will be there. And we'll talk about this patient who just cannot maintain their insulin therapy and yet will spend millions of dollars over the course of several years on their intensive care unit stays for DKA and all its, you know, attendant complications and things like that, where you're like, we're a bunch of smart, well-intentioned people and we cannot solve this thing because it is not ours to solve. You know, it is so much bigger. And those things drive me crazy because I just think most things should be fixable and I want to fix them and I want to fix them fast. And I have almost no patience for problems like that. Like, you know, I want to know the system solution. Um, And this is where confining your practice to the hospital is just an exercise in futility. Like you have to get out there. I mean, there's times where I've walked out of a shift and just picked up my phone and called my senator's office. Uh, Mental health care. I mean, the way that we take people who are having mental health crises and we put them in a windowless room for 120 hours um, and are not able to get them care 
It's almost like torture, what we do to certain patients. And is it our fault that we can't place them in psychiatric care? It's not really our fault, but it's our responsibility. And we do the same thing again, expecting different results, which I, I think is like the, the definition of insanity or something, right? Where you just keep on doing the same thing like, oh, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go into my shift and I guarantee I will put somebody in a windowless room who's having a mental health crisis and I will keep them there for days with no predictable end and I will throw my hands up. We will hand that patient off shift after shift after shift and we'll do almost nothing for them. Really smart people with agency in their lives will just throw their hands up and say there's nothing they can do about it. And the truth is there's a ton that we can do about it. It may not be in that shift, but we actually can go out and agitate that we are not delivering humane care and actually policy shifts. I've seen laws around this specifically shift. Resources can shift. You know, our payer models can shift so that we have more parity around mental health care. So there are more resources so we can draw in more clinicians. I mean, there are things that can change, not on like a day-to-day basis, but certainly over the course of, of years or a course of our practice so that it feels different. When we walk out into retirement, it should feel different for the people we're handing off to permanently. As you describe the mental health rooms in the emergency department, I mean, it, it's just, I'm sure it strikes a nerve with a lot of listeners as well, because it, it looks like a prison room. It's unhealthy for the patients. I think it's unhealthy for the providers. I don't think it's particularly safe when you're in that room. One of the hospitals where I worked at in, in Portland, it's just down the street from you, built a unit in the back, which was because at times there would be like 20 boarding mental health hospitals. So they built a little psych ed not a psych ed but but a psychiatric holding area that's like super nice it's got nice lighting and it's super chill the you know everybody gets food the psychiatrist rounds you could feel when you went back in there just this ah oh, this release and the patients were more chilled and it was like oh this is what this care should look like it should look like respite instead of right. torture right literally torture the patients who are not any anyone should be tortured but who least of all should be. I totally agree. I mean, it really, I've had so many patients say to me, even if I wasn't bad when I came in, I would be bad by the time I had to leave because of the way that I'm treated. And then we feel stressed around that care. And I try to think of what would it be like if you were having a mental health crisis and you knew when you went to the hospital, they were happy that you'd come. You were a valued patient and they were so excited to get you better. Just imagine that little shift in how you're received and treated for the whole stay. And instead, because we don't have a mechanism to treat them well, we dread taking care of them. And that translates to the way that we greet them, the way that we treat them, the way that we speak to them. I honestly think in many cases, we make things worse. And it's so clear to me that the solutions are not within the four walls of, you know, of the emergency department or, or, you know, of the entire ER. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's the impetus for activism in a nutshell. Getting back to... Esther Chu here. So <laughs> okay. you, you, so you've got a lot on your plate. You're a researcher, advocate, entrepreneur, clinician, mom, wife, like you've got your whole, all your, all your family stuff, but in the professional realm between all of that stuff, like what percentage of time do you spend doing each of those? Generally somewhere between 60 and 70% of my time is research. And then the other part to 100% is, um, is clinical work. So it usually boils down to about one or two shifts a week in the ER and then the rest is is research and other things, mentoring. I run a research fellowship and just to stay busy in other ways. You work all nights. That's right. Yeah. Why do you do all nights? So I had twins eight years ago. And one of my twins, so first of all, you know, they never slept and I barely remember them as infants, but they slept a little bit more at night than they did during the daytime. It kind of made sense as a family for me to disappear while they were sleeping. And then one of my infants in particular 
She's so, she was so hard headed immediately. She was just my stubborn child. She still is. I mean, she's been completely consistent from the moment that she was born, but she refused to take a bottle. And it was just so interesting to see. I mean, this little tiny, tiny, they were a little early as twins and she was this teeny tiny thing and she would not take a bottle. So if I was gone for 12 hours, she would fast the entire time, which is amazing because when I was home, they were nursing every two to three hours and she would just close her mouth and not eat until I came home. The overnights made particular sense because at least that was a stretch where she would be sleeping and I could almost make it home in time for one of their feedings. And if if she woke up and needed to be fed, my husband would actually run over to the hospital with her. During that overnight shift, you have a chance to kind of like sneak away and do a quick nurse and then she would go back home. You know, and then I just never got out of it because it just made sense. Even as my kids went into school age, I thought I would stop doing overnights, but it still kind of made sense because then they could go to sleep. I go do my shift. I can sometimes make it home to say goodbye to them on their way to school. And so... Um, I just kind of got stuck and now I'm addicted. I'm just a nighttime person. I mean, I just like the flow of the nighttime. I like how it's relatively, you run with a leaner staff. So it's just simpler. I kind of just like the pace and flow of the nighttime. I, I actually, every now and then I'll get stuck in an odd day shift and I'm all thumbs. I don't know what to do. There's so many people around. <laughs> these consultants come down in these huge teams. There's just all these bodies around. Things seem to go really slowly. No one's, I don't know. It's very strange for me in the daytime. It's very strange. So I'm just, at this point, I'm just a nighttime person. What is your pregame routine or ritual before a night shift, you know, with, with nap, with prep, with diet, with taking any sleep aids until you get to work? Yeah, I generally have a, a normal day beforehand, and that often is going into the office and setting up meetings and doing research and things like that. I try to run that day. I run most days, but pre-shift, I try to run because then my day off is post-shift. Um, just do everything so that I can hit around 7.30 at night tired. And then I take a two and a half hour nap, two, two and a half hours if I'm lucky. That's a good day. I just get up and I go straight into work, take caffeine with me of some sort, usually a, a good snack. And that's it. Then I power through the shift. And then post shift, I usually set up a bunch of meetings because I just have so much, so many meetings during the day. So I try to set up meetings that are kind of don't require higher cognitive presence, more like administrative things where you need to check in, but you're not like, let's go over this regression analysis and find detail where you really need to bring your full brain. Cause then I can get a few checked off at a time when I'm kind of hopped up on the post shift, you know, cocaine anyway. <laughs> Um, I just can't go home and boom, go to sleep. You know, I need some process. So, and there's sunlight out and all this stuff. And so it just, it makes sense for me, or I can take some calls on my way home and just kind of max out that time. And if the calls are sufficiently busy, they actually like just kind of serve as like this lullaby almost that puts me to sleep. So I've had a couple like really boring calls where I've actually fallen asleep on them and woken up and they're still talking. So those are, those are great. It's like a sleep aid, you know, it's like better than melatonin or ambient, just like just stack a couple of really boring administrative calls. And then I try to go to sleep around 10 and then I'll sleep about two to three hours and get up and try to have a normal day. And do you do any kind of sleep aid before your night shift or before you do your post night shift sleep? No, because it's I metabolize too slowly. Mm -hmm. So then I'm still groggy. So I've tried that. But if I do a melatonin before I go to sleep or anything, um, I just still feel the after effects for a long time. So just I just count on fatigue. And what about that night after? I was just up this last night and now my circadian is a little bit messed up. Is that, do you just like go to sleep and you're fine? The key thing is your post-shift nap has to be short. Mm -hmm. And if it's longer than three hours, then it messes up my sleep. If mm. I keep it brief, 
then I can power on until eight or nine o'clock and I'm ready to go to sleep. So actually that sleep deprivation is so key. Um, if I have to, I'll sort of, you know, and I sleep a little bit too much, I'll do the melatonin that second night or a glass of wine or something to help me sleep. Cause then the next day I'm tired, but at least I'm back on schedule. Cause I only do one offs. I don't do series of nights because they're, you know, just the way that I've set up my life. Yeah. That, um, I used to call that one in a row. That was it. One in a row. <laughs> that, was all I, all, that was all I could tolerate. It was one I night know. in a row. Our, our residency selves are rolling their eyes at how <laughs> soft we've gotten. But it's just, that's kind of all that I can do without yeah. sort of having cumulative fatigue. Are you a coffee or a tea drinker at night? I weaned off coffee a little while ago. So I'm in this really long stretch of no coffee. And actually, when I have coffee, I feel so high. Yeah. I get all like sweaty and nauseous and I'm super hyped up until I crash. I mean, it really is like a drug to me right now. So I'm solid chai tea, but overnight's usually taking a Diet Coke. I don't know why. It feels like decadent. Those are pretty satisfying, especially when you haven't had one for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, don't, I try to eliminate them from my normal life and then it feels like I'm getting this treat from the overnight. You're working in a university setting where not only you're caring for patients, but you've got trainees. And I'm curious as to what lesson you try to impart to your trainees? Like if they're saying it's like, okay, this is the thing that I give to these guys, if there is one, and then how do you do it? I feel like after working overnights and mostly overnight weekends for so long, the one thing that I have to offer is kind of this awareness of flow and some efficiency tips. That plus being aware of implicit bias and trying to really be aware of those things when you go into patient rooms. I think those are kind of my specialty areas. And so those are the things that I try to teach. And the nice thing on overnights too, is like, you really have a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with your learners. Um, there's just less going on, you know, or things are simple, everything's streamlined. There's kind of just fewer interactions and fewer trainees. And so it's a good time to sort of be like, okay, I've picked up a bunch of patients for you. However, let's pretend I didn't, you know? And so what would you do in the ER right now? Um, let's think about, uh, what is happening out in triage and how does that affect the rest of the ED? And then really stopping and taking moments to think about how our implicit biases might impact the care of patients in, in unexpected ways. Like, I mean, I try to make it clear with trainees that sometimes these biases come in when you least expect them. Like the patient who's an asshole. Like, I mean, that's not what you'd expect me to talk about, right? Like you expect me to talk about how might we be biased against patients who are, you know, racial minorities or who are, are women. I actually think if you're a total asshole, it's like one of the, it's one of the most harmful things because nobody wants to go into your room. Um, and that's actually kind of a high risk patient um, because the less time we spend at the bedtime, the best, the less we understand that patient, the less of a narrative we get, the less that we're inclined to do that double check or triple check to make sure that their clinical trajectory is good. So I'm going to try to get residents to kind of lean into patients that make them feel uncomfortable. Like if you feel like you want to get out of that room fast, that's actually a patient that you need to double check on and triple check on. So yeah, I, I didn't expect that the name of this episode would be Esther Chu on why assholes are important too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> totally. That is, that is one possible subtitle. Yeah. You know, dealing with the difficult patient, the master skill with the difficult patient is self mastery, is self awareness. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what am I feeling inside? Oftentimes a borderline patient or you know, someone who just kind of has baseline anger or they're angry about something and you're just the vessel that they're putting that all into. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what is the real story here? And 
I've told the story a few times, but I once heard a doc. She was in, she had been an army doc. She was an OBGYN. There was a patient who was having, I, I think, a miscarriage, and she came down to the emergency department, and the husband just laid into her. She just walked in and just laid into her, and she was first off, she didn't take any shit. At the same time, kind. He just laid into her, and she just listened to it and listened to it and said, "Well, sir, I want to take care of your wife and I want to take care of you, but you have to know that I am not the author of your distress." <laughs> Right. That is like such a, it's a fair frame that you give. Cause I do think, you know, we see people at the worst times in their lives. Sometimes it's the stress of being there or the, you know, the compounded misfortunes that landed them where they are with you. And, um, I think in the ER, that something you learn up front is we're seeing people on their worst day and we don't hold them to the standard of their best day. So um, when I say asshole, I mean, you know, patients who are abusive and openly racist, or they just were brought in because they were running from the cops because the infant that's beaten up in the, you know, first trauma bay, beaten up by them. How do you provide care in some of those really challenging settings? But but I think in general, it, it's true. We give as much grace as possible. And I think somebody who may come off as an asshole is actually just super, super stressed about their day. And I think it's analogous to harm reduction. You know, you have somebody who's a, a heroin addict and you think, well, you got to quit this heroin right here. It's like, well, even though to you as a clinician, it's, it's shocking this is happening, but you have to meet them where they are. And when somebody is, is a borderline personality, you're not going to change that borderline personality. You need to meet them where they are rather than thinking like, okay, they're going to have to act this one way. It ain't going to happen. I, I have to set the limits, but I have to understand that this is where they're existing right now. Yeah. Bringing that frame of when I applied to med school, I was like, I wasn't sure if I'd get in. I always wanted to walk in knowing I'm grateful to be there. And it's an honor to take care of people. Every single patient, honestly, it's an honor to take care of people because we're put in this position where they're trusting us with something, with their lives, with their discomfort, with their needs. And to think of on some level, everybody's there because they had a need that could not be met outside the hospital. That's a great point. And to try to figure out, okay, and what is my job? It's to meet that need as best as I can. Do we at times have to say this hospital has respect for all policy, you know, and, and here are the kind of the consequences of not inter interacting respectfully uh, when you're able to, 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 to do it. I think that's actually also fair because we have jobs, we're employees, we can ask for a respectful and safe environment. That's fair too, you know, but I think there are ways where we can make that work most of the time for everybody. I'm going to do a little call and response. I just want to see how this works, a little experiment. <laughs> okay. right. if, if I said space, what would be the next line? The final frontier. You've got a podcast called Doctor's Log, and yeah. and I, clearly it's a Star Trek reference because you know Star yeah. Trek, right? Oh, and yeah. I, I wondered that. It's like, okay, I wish I had called this podcast Doctor's Log because it's so awesome. And it's, yeah. it's a diary of the experience you've been having during COVID. And I'm curious as to how the narrative of that podcast, right? Because this you're kind of speaking extemporaneously about what yeah. you're thinking, what's going on. How has the narrative of that podcast changed from that first episode to today? Yeah, that first episode was really, I mean, that was in the scariest part of this pandemic. I mean, I think I started, or at least it was born in my mind with a friend who encouraged me to do it and supported me in doing it in maybe March. And that was really where every single day things were different. I mean, you remember that time period where we're like, okay, we had a first case in Oregon. New York is exploding. 
certain things are becoming very, very obvious. Like we do not have sufficient personal protective equipment. If you project out, we're not going to have enough ICU beds or ventilators or anything across numerous states. Um, this is a turning out to be a, an unusual virus in some aspects. There was this period where you would walk in at the beginning of the shift and you would have an algorithm to follow for testing for COVID. And by the time you walked out at the end, that algorithm had changed. It was so dynamic. So at the beginning, it was like, what the hell is happening? And what's going to be the next aha moment about this disease? And as time went on, it was less about, wow, this is the next thing I need to worry about. And just that immediate anxiety of how many of my friends are going to get sick? Are healthcare workers going to be okay? You know, are, are our hospitals protecting us? Like there were just kind of these things that were just like, boom, boom, boom. And then it became much more like, okay, now we have a, the benefit of a little bit of data and time under our belt. And it became much more about these rolling bigger issues like the vast health in, you know inequalities that were really exposed during COVID. And just the big surprise to me about how our entire healthcare system is set up for short-term crises, but not for long-term extended, deep, multidimensional crises and how stressful that was. Yeah, you put out a really interesting tweet the other day about the morbidity of COVID there's a whole hell of a lot of people getting sick and permanently yeah. ill after this that that's not making the news. That's what, you know, you look at these videos on TV of kids in college and thousands of kids without masks and doing this like, well, we're not going to die. It's like, you know what? You could be pretty effed up for the rest of your life. Yeah, People really want to talk about this pandemic with binary simplicity. You died or you didn't. It's just amazing because so much of the data that's coming up shows that people have extended symptoms, that they're... You know, I, I'm sure we will have names for these things that we simply don't have, but just people not being able to get back to normal after having a, you know, what we would categorize as a sex, successful recovery. There's just this complexity to it that we're not appreciating. So there's going to be a huge healthcare cost to this that's unmeasured right now because we don't even know what we're capturing. I want to stay on Twitter. Yeah. For better or worse. Is that is that your main social media platform, Twitter? Yeah. Yeah, by far. Yeah, I mean, boy, if it wasn't, holy smokes, you've got like a like 150,000 followers. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in 2017, you tweeted, and this got 28,000 retweets. That is five times the size of the town I grew up in. <laughs> wow, in those terms, yeah, I think it's twice the size of the town yeah. I grew, in, grew up in. So you said, quoting you, we've got a lot of white nationalists in Oregon. So a few times a year, a patient in the ER refuses treatment from me because of my race. And I'm curious as to how that plays out. And what do you do? What do you say? It depends. Sometimes, like I said, because I work the overnights, there aren't extra docs floating around. Um, to the extent they are, it's the resident. So I think my first instinct is to care for the patient. And like you said, meet them where they are. I mean, this is a kind of a horrible place to have to meet them. But Often, especially if the patient is sick, I mean, that's the first call. It's like, is the patient critically ill? Are they delirious or psychotic or something where they're not really accountable for the decisions they're making or the words that they're saying? And if not, they kind of get a pass. I mean, it's not like 
racism has to, to come from somewhere. You know, it's like it's in there somewhere, but still you're critically ill or, you know, you're not in your right mind because of your illness, whether it's psychiatric or medical. And um, you give them a pass and you commit to taking care of the patient and you do whatever you can to make them comfortable. And if it's that the physician who is the trainee and is not a person of color makes them feel more comfortable, then I will do that. At the same time, there's an obligation to our trainees and to our staff to establish norms. So I think redirecting patients, still referring back to policies that maintain that everyone deserves respect, including the workers. I think those things have to be stated and they have to be discussed as a team because that patient may be delirious, but if part of their delirium is they're going to pick on the nurse of color who's at the bedside and that is a horrible situation to be in for eight hours before we get that patient transferred out to another bed, that may not be a tenable situation. So I think you have to still approach the team with a lot of compassion and understanding and try to figure out what is an acceptable working condition for the entire team? And it's just easier for me as the attending to absorb a little of that. I mean, it's not that often that I have a patient say, where are you from? You should go back to where you came from. I mean, that kind of thing gets thrown around for one reason or the other. And sometimes it's funny, frankly. You know, it just depends on the context. You know, it's like sometimes somebody who's like really high or drunk will say, go back to where you came from, leave me alone, you know? And there's something that's like funny about that. But if there's a trainee there- You mean Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Cleveland, but I'm not moving back there just for you. But, you know, if there's a trainee there, that changes it because I can't just laugh it off. I actually have to explain to the trainee- sort of why I'm letting that go in this patient and why I'm not trying to have a conversation about it um, and how different circumstances might actually lead for that patient to be escorted off campus because part of our hospital policy is that you cannot come in and just do racial harassment if it is within your ability to control it. Harassment of a person based on their gender or sexual orientation or race or ethnicity is actually not permitted on the campus. That's a rule. And if you can't abide by that rule, then you can seek care elsewhere. And there are certainly times where I will show the the policy to someone who's being disruptive and behaving that way. And then if they can't comply with it, they're actually escorted off. They're stable, have a clear sensorium, they're making their own decisions, they're choosing to behave in that way. And, and there has to be a line somewhere. You know, just because we're healthcare professionals doesn't mean that there's no professional line. There's just sky's the limit for, for how we're treated. Say somebody had gout, you know, they're clear sensorium, they've got a swollen red ankle. This needs attention, but they're not delirious. They're not septic. They say they don't want you to care for them because you're Asian or a woman or, or whatever. Yeah. Like, what would be in the room? You're face to face with them and it's usually a white dude. Yep. What would you say in the moment? Can I ask why? You know, so you seek some understanding. It's rare with the race piece. Um, sometimes it comes up for gender, you know, so like a male physician will be in the room and somebody will say, I don't want to see you. And then when you investigate a little bit, it, it could be actually a very valid reason. Like there are people who are like, I was sexually assaulted last year and I actually cannot have a strange man in my, so close to me, violating my space or touching me because it gives me flashbacks. And you're like, oh my God, who wouldn't try to accommodate that? You know, I mean, even if you're like a single provider, you'd be like, I totally understand. Um, I'm going to stand over here and the female nurse is actually going to do the exam and tell me what she finds and then we'll treat you that way. You know, I think there's a lot of ways where you're like, I, I completely understand that I'm going to try to accommodate them. But when there's not that element, you know, so you are like, let me understand. And they say something horrible, like, I just don't think Asians can be great doctors. Um, I want an Amer a real American doctor. You know, they kind of double down on the racism. Then you're like, you've established 
stability. Um, this person, like you said, um, is able to make decisions. Um, you kind of explain to them that we have a respect for all policy. And I'll actually show it to people and I'll say, you can abide by this policy. And also, I'm the only doctor on right now. So I'm the supervising doctor. You don't have a lot of choices. Um, but I, we certainly understand we can, we can escort you to the door if this is not where you want to provide care, you can go seek a white provider elsewhere. My 17-year-old, we were putting this together, my wife and I kind of you know, re- researching all of the all the stuff. And we came across this tweet and our 17-year-old son was there and he said, oh, well, here's what I would say. I'm totally happy to care for you. And if you'd rather not, well, you can see yourself out. <laughs> totally. It's fortunately rare, yet I've had it happen often if there's all these permutations. But, you know, I've had somebody ask me to look up the doctors in the other ED and see the race of those doctors. And I'm like, I'm not doing your racist homework for you. I mean, like, (laughs) I'm totally supporting you leaving. And that is where this conversation needs to end. (laughs) I want to switch gears to sexism. Yeah. You are such an incredible advocate for equality and reversing disparity. And I I think when you have a strong message that points a finger at an issue needing attention and calling it out to all parties involved, and we're talking about sexism in medicine, for example, either makes people stand up and cheer or want it to kind of go away. Or I I think maybe there's there's a middle ground of like ambivalence and apathy, but, yeah. And, you know, preaching to the choir is easy and it's invigorating when you're part of the choir. But what about getting the rest on board, which I think is a, you know, a significant portion? I mean, I'd say I would say, how do you how do you get men on board? But I don't think it's exclusively men. No, it's really true. I think, you know, anyone who has succeeded in the current paradigm feels a little uncomfortable when you start talking about changing that paradigm. Um, and so that extends to men and to women. I think you're absolutely right. It's like, I mean, here's what generally happens when I give talks. Um, I'll come give a talk and have a title that says something like ending sexism and racism in medicine or something like that. And I walk in and it's all women and people of color and this little sprinkle of woke white guys, you know, who have come to, to be supportive. And I can just tell really quickly that it will be a really fun experience to give that talk, but it won't necessarily move the needle because the people in that audience are already completely on board. And and actually, I plan different talks depending on who I think I'm talking to, because if it's an audience like that, then I just sort of move through the background really quickly, like in the first less than 10 minutes, and we spend the rest on strategies and including strategies to talk about these issues with people who just aren't there. There's other times where I'm just asked to speak to a general audience and we purposely work on the titles so that it doesn't really give away my bottom line, which is really about equity. We'll say something like building a better culture of excellence for medicine. I've done that more and more where I just give this and then I tell people, bring in the broadest audience you can. And that is a little bit a higher risk thing, but I actually enjoy doing it much more. And I will spend fully half or more selling the topic actually. And I will be as freaking funny as I can be um, because you have to disarm and engage people when you're talking about something this uncomfortable. And so, I mean, I'm not like a tell a joke a minute kind of person, but I work very hard to build humor into these things. I try to 
basically kill people with data. It's extremely data-driven. I actually avoid narrative. Um, I'll do a little bit of narrative, just more for switching things up and engaging people on a personal level, but it's mostly data-driven and I do data on top of data on top of data. And if um, every single time somebody raises a question, like they'll say, well, that's an academia, what about this? Then my next talk is richer in that area. Like I'll just say, here's frequently asked questions or here's a counterpoint people have brought in, have brought up and I will bring in more data just to, to address those things. And so there's a lot of common misperceptions around things like the wage gap or the opportunity gap. Those talks to a general audience of people who are not already kind of have not already bought into the need for change are more challenging, but they're tremendously more satisfying on a professional level. And you just have to be willing to accept that people will be upset, which I'm totally comfortable with at this point. So, I mean, when somebody walks out, I know that I'm right at the edge, you know, (laughs) I'm probably on the uncomfortable side and maybe I can bring it back, but I'm right just about the right area if one person walks out. And why do you think people get upset during those talks? I mean, what I try to avoid is people taking it too personally. But I mean, I have so often in giving these talks, it's amazing. I'll talk about structural elements, how our systems are kind of built up to reinforce inequality. And I'll talk about here's the data in aggregate. I know everybody's well-intentioned, but if we don't change our systems and our habits, then this is how it turns out in aggregate. Because as humans, our brains are naturally biased. I am biased, you know, and then I'll talk about how I take the implicit bias every test every year. And I am biased against women leadership. I've taken it for now. It'll be coming up on, oh my gosh, is it 15 years now that I've taken this implicit bias test? And I still have a small bias against women and leadership positions. And that's all that I talk about. And so I try to explain to people that this is just like a side effect of being human and having a human brain, um, of being a, a living, breathing organism is that we have certain heuristics and biases that we bring in. So I'll say all of that. And then somebody will say, you know what? My parents raised me right. And I'm insulted that you would suggest other words. And I was like, wow, I said all that stuff. And they heard a personal attack on their character, their upbringing, their family. They hear, my parents raised me to be a racist. Even though what I'm saying is, we're all a little racist. You know? <laughs> That's, I would almost say, normal. What it says to me is that I need to be more and more explicit about what you shouldn't hear from my message. And so, you know, it's like my preamble has gotten longer and longer and longer. Um, Like I'll say, I know some of you may take this personally, none of this is personal, blah, 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 you know, and I'll put more on myself and give examples about how, you know, I was unable to break out of my own pattern behaviors that reinforced racism. And I think more and more of that, like this is, this is natural. None of us feel good about inequity. So let's get to a place where we can start doing something. So honestly, there's some places where I'm like, whoa, looks like none of you really have any sort of framework for inequity. I can see what your hospital leadership looks like. I see where you've showed up in the news. I need a two hour talk. You know, there are just times when I'm like, I need two hours to do this so that we can get to solutions because I need a full hour to just basically get people to the place where they feel like they're comfortable talking about it. It's hard. I mean, it's like almost aerobic, you know, what you have to do sometimes. (laughs) I'm curious as to how you balance data and narrative. Like data, because this is such a charged issue, data can be hard to argue against. Personally, I feel that data educates me, but narrative changes my mind. So this is the way that I think about it. And I'm I'm actually giving you a bigger peek under the hood than I give to most people. 
because nobody has actually asked me. People come to these conversations of sexism and racism with a very powerful personal narrative. And their narrative goes something like this. I recently hired up a bunch of guys. So you might call me sexist, but I know that nine out of 10 applicants were guys. And that shows that it's actually not about my bias. It's actually just about who wants that job. And what I have to do is uncouple that narrative from their understanding of the problem. And the way that I can do that is not with a competing narrative that they won't relate to. It's actually with data. And so what I'll do is I'll say, here's what's happening in aggregate. So you may all have had your personal experiences and you have, and you've built a certain narrative about this topic. And I'm going to disrupt that narrative with facts that are very difficult to argue with. And what I need to do is get them to that place of cognitive discomfort where they're like, why does my dominant narrative so not mesh with this data that she's presenting? And then I will then introduce narratives so they can understand how this plays out. Uh, What I will frequently do is talk about, okay, so there are all these discrepancies in terms of advancement, hiring, full-time jobs, leadership positions, promotion, advancement, pay goes along with that. And people will be like, but they're not choosing to. And I'll be like, let me tell you a narrative of somebody that explains why it always falls in that way. Because when you look at the job descriptions, they're different. When you look at mentorship and how you're encouraged and sponsored in a leadership position, you're never told that you're appropriate for that role. When you say that you're ambitious and you want these things, this is how people react. People will give women this kind of feedback rather than that kind of feedback. When you ask for letters of recommendation for those positions, this is how men's letters look different than women's letters. And you have to actually walk them through different narratives that are more concordant with that data. That's kind of like a long answer to why I will be really, really data heavy. It's just to get people to a place where I can make them disconnect from their ultimate narrative and give them a little bit of a different perspective on it. Related to that, you know, I've seen you quoted as saying, I mean, this is not just you, this data, this data is out there, that women make up nearly 80% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of the decision makers, including hospital leadership, executives, association presidents, only 20% are women. A couple of questions on that, because I, w- I would love to get into some of the data. Do we know how many women apply for leadership positions and don't get them versus the same question for men. And actually, as I'm asking that, I'm thinking like, wow, I, I wonder if the real question is really upstream from that Yeah. to say like, that's the final common pathway. Is that what we actually need to be looking at? I don't know specifically, but I have a sense about it. And I would almost say that's the issue. I can give you an example. So um, for years, if you looked at the ASEP awards, It's something that I sort of tracked recreationally for a long time. And I was so fascinated by how awards simply don't go to women with the exception of teaching awards. So these kind of the high prestige awards, leadership award, um, advocacy awards, research awards, lifetime achievement awards, those went to men almost entirely. In fact, there's some awards at ASAP when I took up this issue to change it. Some of the awards, I was like, you might as well just call them awards of male excellence because they never ever went to women and and something i felt bad about and this is actually a lesson in advocacy is like i sort of made a big stink about it and then the people who were actually responsible for the awards reached out to me and they were like we felt really bad about that but can we just show you who was nominated you know because it wasn't actually on the decision making end where i had assumed it was 
women weren't nominated for these awards. And actually, if you name an award after a man, there's something that happens subconsciously where people think that women are not eligible for that award. And actually, the, the same is true for naming an award after a woman. People will not nominate a man for an, an award named after women. But it just turned out that historically, all our awards, if they were named, were named after men. John Wigenstein Award, you know, the John Marks Award. Like, you can just imagine all these, like, really prestigious awards in emergency medicine were named after men. And something happened on the nominating side, multiple things, but I think part of it is the naming thing, where you think only a man can be nominated for that. So on the nomination end, there was this total homogeneous slate of nominees year after year. And that was something that was within our power to change. And so one thing, you know, that um, a bunch of us did was just put a whole bunch of women on the slate and you can actually see it change very quickly once you just got the nomination in. And I mean, there's the Rooney rule and all those things like, you know, we've, we've seen this across industries where you just need to, if you diversify to some minimal amount that just the pool of applicants or, or nominees. But I think it's like, what is it? What are the barriers to just getting up for that? And I think they're so numerous. If there's a nomination process, it's in the nominees. Um, but generally, like the pipeline to these leadership awards and to promotions, they're years in the making. They start in residency where people started telling my male peers that they could see them as chairs one day and nobody would ever say that to the women. Never. I mean, you look at the the um, chair development course, which is a formal course that's part of the pipeline for the academic chairs. There's a bunch of guys in there and I don't know why. Um, but they have a hard time just getting women into that thing. And part of it is you need to think of yourself as a former chair. You need that mid-level leadership position so that you feel like that part of the requirement for that is a mid-level position. So you don't give the women the mid-level positions. They're not going up for the higher level positions. You don't signal to women that they belong in those mid-level leadership positions. Some of it is much more passive, which is that you, you get what you have. If you project a certain image, I mean, in my mind, I never even thought I'd get to full professor. Why? Because every single full professor I knew in emergency medicine was a white guy. I just didn't have the, it's not that I thought they're Therefore, I cannot be a professor. It was entirely subconscious that I did not picture myself as a full professor. I didn't even think it was a possibility for it until my husband was like, why couldn't you be a full professor? And I was like, I guess I can't think of an explicit reason. I just, for some reason, don't have that mental image. And he's like, do you think it's because we just happen to not know a single Asian woman who's a professor of emergency medicine? Could it be that there's just no precedent? I mean, right now there are like six other full professors of emergency medicine who are Asian women. Six others, single digits. It's incredibly difficult to picture yourself in some of these roles unless someone plucks you out. And so there are like a million mechanisms for it. Um, and so am I angry at the, the guy who comes in at the end and makes the decision? No, but that's the person who gets the heat. You know what I mean? <laughs> then they're, they're all of a sudden the sexist pig who didn't pick a woman. But actually, what about all of us that contributed 15 years ago when we were giving these messages to our trainees and our junior faculty about who deserves and belongs in these roles? I mean, that's really where the foundation is laid. And so um, there's just a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think, you know, now that I'm a little bit more into this work, I tend to do much less dumb the responsibility on a single person who just happens to be the, you know, the end decision maker, um, when actually there's, there's been a lot going on under the surface. I want to get into that a little bit more. And I saw this Washington Post article that women now outnumber men in medical school. And there was a recent survey that found, and it's quoting from the article, 80% of doctors 65 and over men, 60% of doctors 35 and under women see change in the demographics. Do you think, just your opinion, that the demographics in leadership should 
closely mirror the numbers and the percentages in the workforce? I do. And more importantly, I think our workforce and our leadership structure should actually reflect the populations we serve. So, you know, I'll go a step further. And I think that's the ultimate goal because we actually find that health outcomes actually improve when there's some racial and gender concordance to our population. Of course, our population is more than 50% female and it is very racially diverse. And then you get into the halls of medicine, you're like, Phoomph. it's like it's like a different population from a different country or planet when you go into a hospital and you look who works there, or at least you look at the way that roles are distributed. I mean, one of my friends, Uche Blackstock, who has this incredible social media presence, she was like, oh, you can find people in color in the hospital. You just have to go to the lower floors, you know, where the cleaning staff are, where the food services workers are, the people who keep our shelves stocked are the supply people. But when you look at the you know, the physician workforce um, and the administrative workforce, it looks very different. And actually, I mean, if you look, there are studies globally that are done that look like, what does it look like if you bring in different women leaders and elected positions that who um, that control public health? Public health outcomes for women and for children become better because they have a different orientation in re- with regards to health. And I think that is true when we look at the gaps that we have in our health outcomes. Um, there, there are maternal health, health outcome gaps and there are childhood health outcome gaps. And I think there's actually a compelling, a really compelling argument to bring in many more women and people of color into influential leadership roles so that we can start changing those disparate health outcomes. Gender parity is coming although it's very slow to translate up. I mean, even though we just got women into med school at slightly higher rates than men, I think it just just surpassed 50%. I mean, it's been close for like 30 years. You know, I mean, when I started medical school, we were already celebrating the near equity. It was like 48% or something um, already by the early 1990s. We have had time for people to filter up into the highest leadership levels, and it's barely happening. And part of it is that we just don't turn leadership over. I mean, if you look at some of these really influential healthcare roles, I mean, I'm, I'm applying for some chair roles where people have been chairs for like 20, 25 years. I mean, who's really good at that role for that long? You know what I mean? <laughs> I understand you want institutional memory and knowledge, but I'm not sh- I feel like you peek out on that after maybe a decade. What's really like the upside after that? I-, I think we need to have, if we want there to be turnover, we have to turn things over. I want to explore something you said earlier that as you were talking about that kind of popped back in my mind that you take a self-inventory and you maintain a slight bias against women in leadership. And you are the most visible advocate I know for women in leadership. Where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from society. You know, I think I really just grew up and absorbed the fact that every person in a high leadership position that I saw was a white guy. And to me, that became the norm. I mean, when I was little, I was really into watching, you know, the presidential elections. That was just kind of something we followed so closely. And I would become really attached to a candidate. I mean, as a very small child, you know, I was aware that I really wanted Jimmy Carter to win. When you follow things like that, and there's never a woman in sight, I think your little brain, just like the neurons kind of just grow over and and you learn that that's like a reasonably reliable heuristic. And as you go through medicine, there's nothing really to challenge that. I mean, in emergency medicine, we have in academic emergency medicine, um, there's kind of a joke we have among women at my career stage that we can never get double digits of women into chair positions. And I'm not talking about percentages, head count. 
The minute we get to 10 or 11, we're like, clearly somebody is retiring, getting recruited out, be, will become ill, something, because it's it's like the karma dictates that we hover around nine all the time, single digits. And we're constantly talking to each other like, go for the chair roll. We need more women, you know, and then that person will. And then one person will be like, sorry, ladies, this is really my year to retire. And they feel really apologetic because we finally got to double digits. To not be able to get to double digits, how do you ever change the templates of our junior trainees who are coming up and wondering what is the range of possibilities for their careers if we can't get visible female leadership in a sustained way across our specialty. Um, but you know, I think that's just true across any sort of leadership roles in healthcare um, that have real influence. So, I mean, we're chipping away at it, but it's, it's incredibly rare in particular to see people of color um, and to see a female person of color is truly the most unicorn of unicorns, of course. And that person is so aware that they're trailblazing and there's tremendous pressure on them, if you can imagine, to not make a single mistake. And who wants that kind of pressure? So it becomes like a less appealing role because you're under more scrutiny and you have to represent for your entire gender and race. It becomes this impossible achievement. I want to springboard off of that to talk about the wage gap yeah. in medicine. And I recently learned how controversial and divisive a topic this is. Yes. So setting the stage for listeners, in 2016, Wall Street Journal published wage gaps for hundreds of professions. You can actually just enter in the profession and it gives you what the, the wage gaps is. And it said, for medicine, women earn 64% of their male counterparts on average. Mm -hmm. So 209K for men, 135K for women. I'm so curious as to why this is and if it is something that needs to be addressed in a systemic way. And I'll say in the groups where I've worked, you know, the hourly rate, the pay scale has been the same, you know, like as ER docs, you're paid per hour, you're paid per RVUs or patient scene or whatever. But the pattern has been that the female physicians in the group, when they have kids often start working less and the male physicians, when kids enter the family in the long run, often work more, if not yeah. the same. So there ends up being a discrepancy in how much those two cohorts take home at the end of the year. And of course, this is a wide generalization, but that's just, you know, my, my personal experience how much of that particular phenomenon accounts for the wage gap versus something else? Like in like in Hollywood, what was it, like Jennifer Lawrence or something was paid like eight hundred dollars or something. Marky Mark got paid a million dollars for right? totally <laughs> right. Like so, it was it? Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't know if those that that's exactly who it was, but like so that's kind of like okay, that's horrible. But in medicine, it's like oh, you're working less, you're paid less, but you're working less for this particular reason even as I say, it's like, wow, the complexity just starts kind of stacking up on itself. It's dizzyingly complex. But a couple of things I'd say. First of all, I don't actually refer to the Wall Street Journal study or other studies that are done, earlier studies that were done just purely pulling from the U.S. Census because they weren't well adjusted. Um, I mean, if you look at physician salaries in the U.S. Census data, um, you can actually pull out a lot by gender but you don't have any other information. You don't even have specialty. And specialty, of course, drives income. And of course, specialty is highly gendered. The choice of specialty is highly gendered. And of course, we could talk about pipeline things about that too, because I think actually people are very segregated into specialty. Um, like, why did nobody ever tell me that I'd be great at ortho? But many people told me I'd be great at pediatrics. And I think it's literally because I'm small and a female. If you look at studies that were published really in the last 
I don't know, seven or eight years, they're incredibly well adjusted for these potential confounders, you know, whether it's the Medscape study or some of these like serial studies that come out of one of the Harvard groups. So they're adjusting for choice of specialty, for hours worked, for clinical productivity, for academic productivity, for like the color of your shoes and the last meal you ate. I mean, I actually think it's ridiculous the number of confounders they're correcting for, but they have many, many, at least proxies for how productive you are and how successful you are and 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 then all the other things that you think about and still when you adjust for that there's a persistent unexplained wage gap and what explains that in my mind is bias discrimination based on gender there aren't a lot of other measurable things that we can correct for and it's substantial and it starts early so one of those studies was done on starting salaries straight out of residency, there was a large study out of New York State that, that looked at internal medicine. I think it was just internal medicine. Res- no, 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 I'm sorry. It was all residents who graduated in New York State and what their starting salaries are. And you and I know how accomplished people are at the end of their residency. They basically all just finished residency. I mean, there's a few people who like did residency and also like won a Nobel Prize. But by and large, we just put our heads down and we finished residency. And it's very hard to tell one resident from another. They haven't done anything. And yet there was like a $12,000 wage gap between, no, it was more, it was like $16,000 wage gap between male and female residents that was not accounted for by things like choice of specialty. When you look at that, you're like, could we at least normalize starting salaries? Because something is happening early on that puts you on it. And of course, like your later salaries, and, and of course, not everybody's salary based. Of course, some people are paid by RVUs, or at least a huge portion of your of your compensation is RVUs. But at least in places where your salary to some extent, could we normalize or at least start to normalize or create strict metrics for what your starting salaries are so that you're not you don't have these compounding inequities because if you have a small difference up front, downstream, it's going to become very big. And that's why like over time, the wage gap cumulatively is quite significant for physicians, game-changingly significant, like send one of your kids to college or not kind of difference. And so I think we need to look really early on in the pipeline. But even like a strict RVU system, there's so many ways that that can be manipulated. I mean, talk to female surgeons who are paid almost entirely by productivity which is supposed to be objective. And they will tell you a lot about case mix, how they are sent females, say like general surgeons will, will, can go on for days about how they're sent female patients with complex abdominal, chronic abdominal pain who um, ultimately don't even need a procedure, but they're shifted to them because, oh, they really want a female provider, whether or not that's true. The patients um, that are kind of single issue high likelihood of procedure, you know, like much more um, high yield from a financial perspective, high RVU patient case mix is just totally different for their male attendings than for the female attendings. Um, How much OR time you get. Um, In the ER, I was in a group where the men just kind of got on top of all the evening shifts, which were the highest RVU shifts. I don't know what they did. They staked their claim on them. And a lot of times it was done in this really benevolent way. Like we know women want to be home with their kids. So we kind of shifted you guys to daytime things. And the guys were more open to having the evening shifts. And I was always like, that's really interesting because it seems like you systematically gave men more access to higher acuity and high RVU shifts and systematically gave women different shifts. And some of the women were happy about it. And some of the women were not happy about that at all. And so I think there are just kind of these, even in a totally objective system, we need to not assume, and people will say with absolute confidence, it is RVU-based, so there's zero way that any bias can creep in. I completely disagree. I think there, where you create opportunity and are not paying attention, bias will creep in because, again, that is how our brains are wired. What is the way out of this? 
objective allocation of compensation. And I think we need to just be very systematic about um, investigating sources of bias. So I think we need to you know, look at things like starting salaries. And I am very focused when it comes to wage equity, I'm very focused on what happens in the first few years, because I just think that sets the tone for what happens after that. So I think I think salaries should be incredibly standardized right up front. In places where it's not a salary system, where there's at-risk pay, you have to have audits to try to figure out if there are systematic discrepancies and whether they're agreed upon by the group. So I think if there's a group where the women are all like, we're taking daytime shifts, they're lower volume, and we're going to work fewer hours, and um, and we don't want to do overnights or weekends. And we as a group are saying, we will be paid less because that is a measurable benefit to us. I think a group can decide democratically on a pay discrepancy, but it shouldn't be decided automatically. It should be an explicit conversation. Um, and I think most groups would benefit from a wage analysis every year or two to try to figure out where income inequality may have crept in. And if it is not a planned inequality, then I think you need to address it. So, I mean, those are just some starting, those are some starting places for it. I love that. And actually it's, it segs into something I wanted to ask you about, which is equity quotient. And from the front matter on the website, it says, we work with standout healthcare organizations, employer groups, and academic centers to create a culture of equity, safety, and respect. And thinking, wow, who doesn't want that? Awesome. Lots of people. Lots of people don't want that. We'll get to that in a moment. You know what? First, how do people come to that? You know, say like a lot of people don't want it. Do people contact you because they think, oh, you know what? We need to have a more enlightened culture. Or is it sometimes there's been an incident or there's been some literal or figurative indictment or lawsuit and they think, oh, we need a change in leadership or how, how our culture goes. Is usually like a negative or a positive where people reach out to you. Uh, that's such a smart question. I will tell you, it's almost always a negative. So something happened. Um, they were cited by their medical school. They had a whole bunch of women quit. The women um, come to the group and say, this happened. There was a really big incident of racial discrimination or microaggressions, as we call them, or racialized abuses. Something happened that was catastrophic. And people call us in as part of their kind of remediation or their attempt to address uh, a real conflict in their group. I thought that we would get people who were high achievers in equity. You know, I I really, I thought it would be a balance. I was like, yes, we'll do some bailouts, but I think we'll get people who have really high aspirations because I always talk about centers of excellence when it comes to organizational culture, um, particularly with regards to equity and safety. But we've had almost almost nobody who's a high achiever. Usually it's places that are struggling. Quite often it's places that have had a seminal event that they really need to address. And that's fine. I actually think that's a very good use of our services because it helps you design an approach to your organization that is quantitatively driven and is strategic and is intentional rather than just kind of guessing where you need to put your efforts. So I think that's good. I would love to have more clients that are just really high achievers in this area are already good and want to do even better. And that's just, that's incredibly rare. How does it work operationally when you go in? So you get called into university X and Mm -hmm. they say, we've got 15 harassment suits over the past <laughs> over the past year you know, or or whatever and it's like okay we called you in so operationally how do you 
come in? How do you analyze? And then, you know, what, what's the recommendation that you give? It's so different for every client. And that's kind of the fun and exciting part. So we basically start with kind of an environmental scan. So it's a meeting with leadership where we just try to understand why did you come to us? What are your perceived needs? And what are your goals? And once they articulate that, we can then make a plan. So if it's like we had this really tragically difficult something. Um, we are, it's often, it's like for some strange reason that we're unable to get to, we're not able to hire a single woman, you know, or yeah, we had all this harassment and we can't figure out what to do. We will kind of make a plan. And generally it starts with a baseline assessment across five domains. And so we assess not just safety and sexual harassment, but also are people feeling valued? Are they respected? Do they feel like there's opportunity for advancement? And, um, we have sort of a advancement pay promotion cluster? Um, And then what is the general culture like? And the general culture is one like, well, you know, um, I do feel valued, but all the guys go golfing together. And um, that's not something, you know, is just kind of this bro-y culture or this culture of exclusion based on race or whatever. We have all these detailed measurements across domains. And then that allows us to give recommendations to the organization about where their problem areas are, what potential corrective actions might be, and whether they need more assessment in terms of sort of qualitative or focus groups or maybe one-on-one interviews to try to delve a little bit more into their problems because it's not clear from the quantitative assessment because it's more of a mixed bag or it's complicated. And then they implement. So we don't go in and fix. We can do some trainings and some lectures, but in general, we just, you know, if there's a perception that pay inequity um, is a big issue, they need to figure out, is that true? And then also address the perception. And then we offer reassessment. So you can sort of see, did you move the needle with what you did? Right, that's key. Because, you know, whenever you have a consultant come in and look at something, it's like, oh, yeah, everyone's excited. And then you change it for a week, and then it doesn't stick. And there's no reminder. The reason I started this company was because when I was taking implicit bias training for the third time, I was like, this feels really good that day. And then you go back to the same working environment. You know, it's like, it felt really good. The first time you're like, my brain has changed. We are all going to move forward with no bias. And then by the third time I was like, we got to measure this shit, you know, like what exactly is happening if anything? Cause the one thing I know for sure is that we're spending a lot of money on this. And if this is not the highest impact area, then we need to move on to other things. You, Jane Van Dees and Derek Cass wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine 2019 times up for medicine. This came out of the, the times up movement that started in that started in 2018 to make work safe, fair and dignified for women of all kinds, you know, with all of the crap that was going on in Hollywood and then me too. And then times up came and it was all right, here we go. And at the end of your article, you say, if there's anything this report makes clear and you're talking about, you know, a report that was done on, sexual harassment in academic mm-hmm. sciences, engineering, medicine. If there's anything that this report makes clear is that medicine is ill-prepared to make meaningful steps toward actually ending harassment. And why is it that medicine in particular is ill-prepared for this? Okay, say compared to other industries. Totally. Medicine is compared to the military in terms of creating a culture that's really ripe for sexual harassment. I love one of the authors of that report from the National Academies is this professor of OB-GYN at University of Michigan named Tim Johnson. And he has this amazing quote where he said, you know, if I had to de novo create an environment that is ripe for sexual harassment, I would design medicine, basically a hospital. Because he said it's got a very traditional hierarchical structure. It's male-driven and male-led. 
it signals that sexual harassment is okay. And then physically we have this set up, right? Like we have physical structures where they're kind of private rooms where 24 seven operation, there are just many different people colliding in different circumstances where behaviors can go unnoticed and unaccounted for. And then there's this total culture of tolerance of abuses in general with sexual harassment kind of bundled in there. And so you put all of that together, harassment is going to happen. And not only is it going to happen, but people are not going to report it because we're bred to have this really high tolerance for pain of all kind and disrespect. We're also bred to succeed professionally. Um, and if that person is your path to the next stage, you know, you're going into a highly specialized area of research or a highly competitive subspecialty, and that single person is responsible for your fate, then they have kind of carte blanche to abuse or harass you in any way because they are the gatekeeper to the next step in your career that you've worked your entire life for. When you have that kind of setup, people are not going to report it. They will tolerate abuse and they will get the signal from the environment that uh, that harassment and abuse is the norm. And so um, just like every element uh, uh, that you can put into a Petri dish that cultivates harassment is present in healthcare in a way that just isn't always, it doesn't always come together 100% in other industries. If you could insert one change into how healthcare is structured to try to start turning the ship, what would that be? Just one. Is it only just one? You can have seven. <laughs> can I have several? Sure. This is one of those things that becomes really circular because, um, but I always say we really need to um, improve the diversity representation on the ground floor, but then all the way up to the highest leadership, including the boards of our, you know, of our healthcare companies. And that doesn't automatically do everything, but change will not happen without it. So I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. And then I think we need to do some serious restructuring. I mean, if you look at the NIH recommendations, they put together a task force to advise the director on how to eliminate sexual harassment from uh, biomedical research environments. And one of the things they talked about is how we need to create mechanisms that aren't so strictly hierarchical. And one of the things they recommended was instead of having a single PI on a huge grant, you should have multiple PIs. Therefore, first of all, those multiple PIs can be accountable for each other's behavior. There can be a check and a balance on, on bad behavior. But also that one person is not responsible for the fate of all the, you know, the postdocs and the doctoral students and the trainees under them, that there are multiple avenues for advancement, mentorship, and moving ahead and getting that recommendation. So the MPI mechanism was this small little thing that I really paid a lot of attention to because how do we make all of our leadership structures a little bit less vertical and a little bit more horizontal without losing too much efficiency in our decision making and, you know, in the way that we're able to operate. I think that's one key thing is, is doing a little bit of structural dismantling, I think could go a long way. I want to finish up with a little lighter fare. Yeah, <laughs> a lighter fare. So I'm so curious as to what your first step was toward becoming uh, what's really a, a media personality. You know, you're talking about reading that article and kind of like feeling this internal bubbling call to action? And was it, I am now doing this, and here is the path where I go from point A to point B, where point A, you're an ER doc and no one but your partners know about you, to point B, you're now on CNN and TED, you're invited to speak at South by Southwest. You are a doctor speaking to the public versus like, you know, like a doctor speaking to other doctors. 
Yeah, it wasn't super intentional, but I do like the way that it played out in that it allowed me to play to my own strengths and also be authentically me. And so, you know, I think if I'd been like, I must go on CNN to be famous, you know, I think I wouldn't have gotten there. And I honestly, I don't even feel like CNN or media appearances are are what I think of as my strength. It's more like it is a part of the the whole package um, that I do with some trepidation always. Um, but I think I stay focused on what I feel to be authentically me, which is, I mean, I love data and I love research. And I find that that if I can pair narrative with powerful data and get to tell a story that's complete um, and use that to advocate for the change that I know that I need to have, that kind of core behavior and the way that it plays out, which is a little bit of research. Um, it's a lot of writing, actually. Um, and then it's just finding different ways to put that core product out to the public um, by communicating creatively, by using networks of healthcare providers in the public. Um, and then some of that bubbles up to the surface in these higher profile things like, you know, like the media and um, and the news. I think the key thing is I'm always in my own voice and I'm always keeping my core activity something that I consider to be my skill set. And that's what's sustainable. It just cannot be I'm on social media to be visible. There always has to be this what to it and why. You know, I just, I don't need to be on social media because whatever, because I feel empty if I'm not getting recognition or, you know, I mean, I, I think like, I think we sometimes get in this trap of getting this little endorphin rush from tweets and from attention, but there has to be substance there. And I think values and a mission. And if that's not there, then I think you can just burn out on it really quickly or get disillusioned. Yeah, I think a lot of people have mission and an intent for positive change. But with, with you specifically, was there a tipping point where you went from just kind of doing this and putting yourself out there to really the go-to person who's reached out to by the world's major media outlets and medical outlets to say like, oh, we need the person to talk about this. It's Esther Chu. They're just kind of these moments that have been really magical. I mean, one was around that tweet that you mentioned where honestly, like if Chelsea Clinton hadn't tweeted with a comment, it never would have taken off. And that was definitely one of those moments where I was like, okay, I went to the next level. And there just have been these next level moments for sure, that you can't orchestrate. It just has to be the universe coming along and bumping into you at the right point. And it's like, how do you, I, that's like ridiculous advice to give. Like, just keep tweeting and hope that Chelsea Clinton or Bernice King <laughs> will retweet you and then you'll be on your way. You know, it's like, I can't, what, what can I, what is the piece that is translatable? The piece that's translatable is like, just keep doing the work and putting yourself out there. And maybe, you know, Twitter's not your medium. It could be something else. You know, there are people who have really taken off in other formats or just like the writing piece has been really strong for them or the TV piece has been really strong for them. I think for most people, it's like the, you have this thing that is a manifestation of your main thing, um, but your main thing has to be just be a really good fit. But I think the Twitter thing for me is like somehow I express myself really well in 140 to 280 characters. For some people, it's a book. For some people, it's a TV bit or a, you know, a scholarly paper. And that just turned out to be my medium. I love that tweet you put out recently about the trauma surgeon and like how, you know, you work in a place where everyone's collegial and it wasn't that way 20 years ago. I mean, most places it was just, it was combative. And in most places now it is a, a partnership. Like, totally. I, I, was, I was thinking, what does that achieve? I was actually I was thinking about that particular tweet. I was like, okay, that 
really makes you think about what is your intent at work? What are you really doing here? And I think many years ago, the culture was, it's to establish my dominance here so that it's clear that I'm in charge. And I think more and more now, it's not like this at every place. I, I hear stories where it's not, it's how do we work collaboratively to take care of this patient? Now, granted, that's a, an overalization and there are horrible malignant personalities that can completely thwart that. But I think there has been a culture change specifically around trauma. I really think so. And and there's it's what's so satisfying is that literature and science are bearing out what we always thought, you know, because when I was in a trainee and just the culture of trauma surgery was you make your trainees cry, literally. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like a goal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I remember I gave my trauma grand rounds and I didn't cry. And one of my friends was like, are you allowed to graduate from residency? Like you were totally supposed to cry during that thing. That's like a rite of passage. Grown men with children would cry during this trauma presentation with how they ripped you apart. And somehow I dodged that bullet. And, um, but there's actually a literature out that shows that when you have um, a surgical attending who's abusive to staff, the patient outcomes are worse. And you can just imagine why. It's like if you're not emboldened to speak up when you see something, um, that's bad for the patient because it's observations of, you know, of the full team that make sure that you catch errors or potential errors. And there's just this whole cascading effect. And there's just, there's so much more of a really satisfying data-driven reason um, with hard endpoints that have to do with patient care that are really supporting a, a totally different culture. Um, and that means transformation. So um, I think if we're really objective about it, that's, that's where the data are leading. I think about surgeons, we'll take, I'll talk about surgeons here for a minute. Obviously, this isn't the, uh, the last question I want to ask you. But, you know, if you've got a surgeon who is a complete jerk, and it's not male or female, because I've, I've worked with both genders who are complete jerks and male and both genders who are just absolutely wonderful people that I would want to hang out with as much as possible outside mm -hmm. the hospital. When you have the ones that are jerks and repeatedly so, you are more reluctant to call them on questionable cases. And when you have the ones who are like, who are collaborative and you call them up and they go, oh yeah, that's okay. All right. Yeah. That's a really interesting case. You know what? Let me just come down and take a look. You learn and invariably the care is better when they can, you know, put their special sauce of expertise on it. It's like, oh, yeah, this person's going to be taken care of so much better because of your personality. Totally. Yeah, I really think it translates directly to patient care, which is, you know, if it's just like, I don't feel great during this interaction, but it's fine, you know, or that's actually what works for patients, then you just suck it up, you know, which is kind of gratitude. But, but now that we're seeing it's not at all working for patients, then we, then we got to change it. You write a lot, and I'm curious what you read. And what what's a book? This sounds like such a gimmicky question. It is. What is a book that you've <laughs> that you've read recently that would surprise people? You know what I just reread. Do you ever read Ursula Le Guin? I think I've read everything she has written. Oh yeah. my god! I just reread my favorite thing, and I'm totally blanking out on it. What's the plot? Um, it's like a visitor to this, um, who's like a human, who's a visitor to this planet. And the, the people are like, um, have ambiguous gender. Oh and like, yeah. Maybe that, that line that's like the king is pregnant. Is that the, the left hand of darkness? Yes. That's the left hand of darkness. Yeah. I just reread left hand oh, of darkness. So good. And I, yes. And there is actually, it made me realize there was this whole, here's where we get to the surprising part. There is this whole like part that she wrote that was not considered fit for children. Huh? You know, that's like, 
that was like an erotic side plot. Do, do, oh, do you yeah. When there's that? a hermaphroditic character who kind of changes gender and then has sex with the had sex, And I guess she really went into it. Yeah. So they pulled that out and actually it was published as a separate thing. And I was like, I wonder if I can find that. But I've never found it. But my one of my um, really good friends who is a, also a research mentor was like, you should find that thing. You have to go to like a used bookstore and find it. But she's like, it's just so beautifully written um, and just so interesting. And just like her craft and how how she's able to just go into this different world as if she herself observed, anthropologically observed a different species. She said, it's so wonderful. And I was like, I meant to do that. And I never did. So anyway, I didn't read it, but it made me think again that I want to hunt that down at some point. All right. As we wrap it up, what is your call to action? Well, I really want people to have an expanded view of what a physician is. And it doesn't have to be in the way that I do it at all. But I think we all go through our day-to-day lives as physicians. You know, in ER, we go through this shift and we gripe about all these things, right? We gripe about, oh, I have too much charting to do or, um, you know, our, our mental health patients aren't getting good care or something about pre-hospital care needs to be changed. And I just think, it is within our wheelhouse to change these things because nobody's making these observations except for us. And if our sphere of action is just within the walls of the hospital, then we're just passing these problems on to the next generation, the next generation, and we're just adapting around them rather than fixing the fundamental issues. So I think this is where, I mean, you may be consider yourself to be the least political person out there, but on some level, we have to be responsible for structural change in medicine and for making the practice humane and good for patients in the way that we know that it should be. I don't know a single person who thinks that the practice of emergency medicine is perfect and fully realized the way that it is. And I think power is really when all of us start to take ownership of that. All right. If people want to find you, how do they do it? Well, there's Twitter. So at Chu underscore EK, Equity Quotient is my website. It's eqmedicine.com. Thank you so much, Esther. It's been fantastic. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the conversation. Esther Chu. Wow. What a conversation. But those bagpipes can mean only one thing, that we're about to wrap it up. You can check out complete show notes, videos, so much more at our website, stimuluspodcast.com. You can subscribe to our show on pretty much any podcatcher out there. You can, of course, listen on the website. But if you feel so inclined to listen on your mobile, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. And if you happen to subscribe on iTunes, give us a rating. Helps keep the ship afloat and the wind in the sails. Until next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.